For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. It's that time of year again. There's a nip in the air, the holidays are in full swing, and you are halfway through another academic year. And that means Absite 2022 is right around the corner. Fear not, Behind the Knife has got you covered. We've got over 28 high-yield Absite review episodes and our trusty companion book available on Amazon. Everything you need to dominate the Absite. Don't forget to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org where you can easily access all of our podcasts and videos, register for free CME, and sign up for the BTK newsletter. And be sure to keep an eye out for our comprehensive oral board review material, which is due out in early 2022. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Behind the Knife, please leave us a five-star review. Now, take a deep breath. You've got this. And welcome back to another Behind the Knife Absite Review. Today, we're doing esophagus, and we are lucky enough to have with us Jason Bingham, Wudo, and myself, Kevin Canary. Jason, take it away. Okay, so behind the nice absites and board review esophagus. So as always, starting with some high yield anatomy. So woo, layers of the esophagus from inside to outside. So from inside to out, you have the mucosa, the submucosa, and the muscularis propria. The key here to remember is that there is no serosa. Right. So this is one of the parts of the GI tract where there's no serosa, and that's very important. Why, Kevin? The importance of having no serosa is that it spreads through the submucosal lymphatics cancer right so you don't have that that extra barrier and you have a very rich uh, uh lymphatic uh, system there so it has to do with uh, the spread of malignancy um so <clears throat> this is one of the parts of the body that has multiple different um blood supplies from different origins so um uh, kevin walk us through what the esophageal blood supply is yeah we just got finished talking about the inferior thyroid artery off the thyrocervical trunk uh, supplies the cervical portion of the esophagus uh the thoracic portion of the esophagus actually gets blood flow straight from the aorta and then the abdominal portion of the esophagus gets its blood supply from the left gastric and inferior phrenic arteries and I've seen that asked several times. So they'll just ask you what supply is one of those straightforward questions you got to know. What what supplies the cervical portion of the esophagus, the inferior thyroid artery? Um, what makes up the upper esophageal sphincter? Oh, this is the cricopharyngeus muscle. Yep, and uh, innervated by the superior laryngeal nerve. Yes. Uh, this like the neck head and neck surgeons love triangles. There's always different triangles. So what's uh, woo, what's Killian's triangle? Killian's triangle is a, a triangular area in the wall of the pharynx. It's located superior to the cricopharyngeus muscle and inferior to the inferior constrictor muscles. And why is this triangle important? So clinically, it's important because it's a potential weak spot where the pharyngoesophageal diverticulum or Zenker's diverticula are more likely to occur. Perfect. Okay, let's get into some clinical stuff because that's more fun. Okay, so uh, first things first, esophageal perforations. Uh, what can you tell me about these, Kevin? What causes them? Uh, so... 
the most common cause is iatrogenic uh, from generally esophageal uh, dilations, uh, causes esophageal perforations. Trauma can cause it. And then also retching in, in Boerhaave syndrome. Uh, malignancy and chemical ingestion are other causes of esophageal perforation. And what are some methods for diagnosis of an esophageal perforation? So classically, you'll have a pleural effusion um, on the side of the perforation. So likely on the left chest, you'll have a pleural effusion after someone's had uh, massive uh, retching. You'll see pneumomediastinum, so you'll see air tracking along the cardiac silhouette. Uh, you'll feel subcutaneous emphysema. This is a pretty uh, ominous sign. Um, and then they can have a pneumothorax. And then uh, you'll also sometimes see if it's an intra-abdominal esophageal perforation, you'll see subdiaphragmatic air. Okay, so those are your chest x-ray findings. Uh, what are some other methods of diagnosis? So you want to uh, get a swallow study and... Uh, you can either do this with fluoroscopy or oral contrasted CT. You first use uh, the water-soluble uh, gastrographin followed by dilute barium. If no perforation is seen with gastrographin, then you use barium. Um, and then if the patient is an aspiration risk, you should only use dilute barium. Right. So you'll start with the, you know, either a fluoroscopy or, or oral contrast and CD. You use some water-soluble contact, water-soluble contrast or the gastrographin. If you don't see it on that and you still have a clinical suspicion, you'll follow up with a dilute barium uh, swallow for diagnosis. What is the, woo, what's the most common site of an esophageal perforation? The most common site of perforation is the distal esophagus on the left posterior lateral aspect, about two to three centimeters above the GE junction. Right. And there's just a natural weak spot right there. And uh, most common site for an iatrogenic injury. It's going to be what we mentioned earlier, the cricopharyngeus. Okay. Uh, Kevin, walk us through how you would manage a patient uh, that you have confirmed has a esophageal perforation. Right. Um, so it's going to vary based on the location. It's uh, very pertinent to where and how you manage this in the physiologic state of the patient and the damage surrounding tissue, how long the perforation has been there. Um, and then the underlying pathology, do they have cancer? Um, do they have a caustic congestion, et cetera? Um, but generally you're going to start with resuscitation and antibiotics um, for empiric coverage to cover uh, gram-negative rods, oral flora, anaerobes, and fungus. So you, know, you might put them on something like ampicillin, ceftriaxone, flagyl, and fluconazole to kind of shotgun cover everything. As yeah, these... it's important not to forget about the fungal coverage because uh, they'll give you a list of options. you got to be sure you choose the one that has broad coverage and also covers a, a fungus. Yep. And so for the abscite, uh, as far as management, you're generally going to take these patients to surgery. Uh, if it's a very small contained leak and the patient is not ill um, from it, you can consider conservative management, uh, possible stent, possible T-tube drainage. Um, but most of these patients, you're going to do a thoracotomy on if it's a esophageal perforation and do a full uh, myotomy and then closure of the mucosa I actually disagree. I think that um, I think that esophageal like stents are. I think we're going to start seeing those worked into answers for these these tests. So I think if you have a stable patient um, and uh, with a small you know leak, that uh, I think I think stenting was starting to become a reasonable answer even on the tests. And I think we're seeing more and more of that. More senators are capable of doing that. Well, and I, I think they'll make it clear. Yeah, I if, agree. If the patient is septic in any appearance, you're not going to stent them. Correct. You're going to wash out their chest. If they have a big pleural effusion in their chest and, so, and wide 
you know, they're going to make it clear to you. If it's truly they did a esophageal dilation, there's a small perforation scene. Totally stable patient. Totally stable patient. I think yeah. that's an indication for a stint. And I, and I wouldn't get too stressed about the difference. I, th- I agree with you. I think they'll make it clear. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about, depending on, you said it varies depending on location. So how about uh, Wu, you have an isolated cervical esophageal injury. Uh, for this patient, you can open the neck and just drain. Correct, and if you you know if you you can, uh, I think that it's reasonable to you know try and do a primary repair there. But definitely the key there, the, the most therapeutic thing you can do is drain that. Uh, so Kevin, uh, you mentioned a little bit, but a thoracic perforation. So generally, these are on the left side, uh, and so you'll do a left thoracotomy, uh, debride the vitalized tissue, and then you always have to perform the myotomy to visualize the full extent of the mucosal injury. Um, and then you repair in two layers, first with an inner absorbable suture, and then the outer layer of the muscles closed with a permanent suture. And then you cover, you always want to cover with a well vascularized tissue, such as the intercostal muscle, um, the omentum, uh, latissimus dorsi flap, some people say pericardium. Uh, and then you do a leak test, and then you want to widely drain this area. So you place the NG tube past the repair, drain the chest, and close. Um, and then, depending on, you may want to consider enteral access, such as a J tube. Right. So key steps there, do your thoracotomy, debris to vitalized tissue. You have to, have to, have to extend your myotomy so that you see the extent of the mucosal injury, repair in two layers, cover with a vascularized piece of tissue, leak test, drain with an NG tube and with chest tubes. And then before you leave the operating room, make sure that you have a way of feeding that patient. Um, and you mentioned before, considering the, you know, it depends on the cause. How, how does that affect what you do in the operating room? So if you have underlying pathology such as malignancy, a caustic perforation, or a burned-out megaesophagus from achalasia, then you might consider doing an esophagectomy as opposed to doing a simple repair of this. And uh, one thing to say, I actually have seen questions where they ask the type of suture you would use to repair this. So I think that, like, you know, they're not going to, you're not going to be able to list every step of the procedure out, but knowing, you know, the, the myotomy, knowing that you're going to repair in two layers first with an inner absorbable and outer permanent, those are important things to know um, for this procedure. Absolutely. Uh, what if the cause is from a, a iatrogenic injury from you're doing a, um, a dilation for achalasia? What would you, what would you need to do before you left the operating room? <laughs> the classic oral board question, uh, yeah, you perforate them for achalasia. Uh, you want to make sure you do a myotomy. So you're going to close the injury on the side that's injured, but then you want to uh, do a contralateral myotomies in order to relieve their achalasia. It just goes into what you're saying. You really have to consider what caused the perforation in the first place, and you have to under uh, address the underlying pathology at the time of the operation as well. Um, how about if you get in there and you see a severely devitalized esophagus, the patient's unstable, what are your options? So this patient uh, should receive an exclusion and diversion. So the components of that, uh, you first close the perforation, you drain, uh, you do a cervical esophagostomy for proximal diversion. You place a T-tube into the defect and drain externally, uh, essentially creating a controlled fistula. And then distally, you would place a J-tube for enteral access. Great. So that's like your damage control procedure. They can't, they're can't; they on. They're unstable. You just have to control the contamination. And a lot out. of these will be the, I think the question you'd see on this is the uh, homeless guy, 
that was found down and has been perforated for greater than 24 hours is this is the procedure you're going to be super sick super yeah. super sick okay moving on so let's get into some esophageal motility disorders because these are favorites so uh kevin achalasia what is it well for achalasia um it's abnormal relaxation of the les it's a hypertonic lower esophageal sphincter um, and so what's really important about this is the manometry findings we unfortunately are going to see manometry findings on the exam and uh, so these are important to remember uh, so the manometry findings is you're going to have a high or normal les basal pressure with incomplete lower esophageal sphincter relaxation and then uh, you'll see hypotonic or absent peristalsis throughout the esophagus, especially in uh, more severe cases. Yeah. those are, those are very key. You have to have the abnormal LES relaxation and you have to have to have the either hypotonic or absent peristalsis for the diagnosis of achalasia. What do you see on imaging? So that's where you'll see the bird's beak on a barium swallow. Yeah. And so what's the overall, what, or what's the underlying pathophysiology behind this? Uh, it's thought to be caused by degenerative loss of the nitric oxide producing uh, inhibitory neurons in the LES. Uh, so it's ideology is uh, a little mix between autoimmune genetic and infectious. Yep. So it can be idiopathic, I think is the most common cause or secondary to Chagas disease. If everybody remembers a trypanosoma cruzi from their medical school um, uh, as a cause. Uh, what's a key distinction? What is pseudoachalasia? So that, that's a uh, barium swallow finding that looks like achalasia, but is actually caused by malignancy. Or it can be, I mean, it can be the, the, the same physiology as you can have loss of those, those same cells, but it's secondary to a tumor and secondary to uh, a malignancy. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, treatment? So uh, currently it's a minimally invasive heller myotomy with a partial fund application. Um, and so the importance of this and what you're, they'll be tested on is you want to make sure you're extending that myotomy. I think it's six and two, six centimeters up on the esophagus to get a good myotomy and then two centimeters onto the stomach. So they're going to give you an option of, of uh, either surgery for a Heller myotomy or um, a pneumatic dilation, or let's say they give you, you know, Heller myotomy, uh, pneumatic dilation, um, uh, rigid dilation. Uh, what are you going to choose? Um, and a young patient that's a good surgical candidate, uh, I'm going to do the Heller myotomy. Okay. What about somebody who's not as a good surgical candidate? Uh, you can get some benefit out of Botox injections and pneumatic dilatations. Right. Right. So uh, pneumatic dilation is effective, but it has a very, very high recurrence rate and it, it, um, makes the subsequent surgery more complicated. So for young patients who are good surgical candidates, um, you, uh, can go ahead. It's okay to go ahead and take these patients for a Heller myotomy as a preferred treatment. In my personal opinion, is is that the POEM procedure is not absite relevant yet? Yeah, I would agree with that. Maybe maybe five to ten years, we'll see where it goes. But for for right now, um, I would avoid any um, uh, endoscopic uh, myotomies on the boards. And so, what's the LES finding again on achalasia? So, incomplete LES relaxation and either hypotonic or aperistalsis. Um, okay. Uh, next one. So that's achalasia. Um, next one, woo is an isolated hypertensive lower esophageal sphincter. Um, it kind of says everything it is right there in the name, but what are the manometry findings on that one? So on manometry, these patients have a high basal LES pressure 
they have complete LES relaxation, which is in stark contrast to the patients with achalasia, and they have normal peristalsis. Okay, and how can you how do you treat these patients? Uh, so these patients are managed uh, medically at first with calcium channel blockers and nitrates, and if they fail to respond to those therapies, you can move on to a hellermyotomy. Great. Okay, so achalasia covered, isolated hypertensive uh, LES we covered. Uh, Kevin, diffuse esophageal spasm. What are what are the manometry findings on that one? So once again, in contrast to achalasia, you're going to have a normal LES pressure and relaxation. Uh, but what you will have is high amplitude, uncoordinated esophageal contractions. So it won't be a rhythmic contraction. It'll be sporadic and there'll be greater than 30 millimeters of mercury. Simultaneous contractions in greater than 10% of swallows. Okay. And treatment? So the vast majority of these are able to be treated with calcium channel blockers and nitrates, as we discussed. And then surgery is less effective, but for refractory cases, long segment myotomy. Yeah, so these can be very challenging. So again, it's a diffuse esophageal spasm, so high amplitude, uncoordinated esophageal con- uh, contractions on your on your manometry. Uh, you really want to try and treat these medically because uh, it's um, surgery is not, uh, I you know, uh, is less effective than it is for uh, achalasia, and you have to really do a long segment of myotomy along the entire course of the esophagus. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Um, so contrast that then to nutcracker esophagus. What are the manometry findings on that one? So here uh, you have generally normal LAS pressure and relaxation and high amplitude coordinated esophageal contractions. So coordinated as opposed to the uncoordinated that you found on DES. Uh, for these patients, you also treat medically with calcium channel blockers and nitrates. And again, just like DES, surgery is less effective. And if you were to do surgery, you would need a long segment myotomy. Great. And I, and I remember the difference between those two is a diffuse esophageal spasm. A spasm isn't a coordination. It's a reaction, essentially. So whereas a nutcracker esophagus, think of the little guys standing on your, uh, you know, your furnace. They're very uh, coordinated. And uh, so, yeah, that's how I remember it. <laughs> Great. Uh, Wu, you mentioned something earlier about uh, a Zanker's uh, diverticulum. What is that exactly? So a Zanker's diverticulum is a false pulsion type diverticulum. It's due to dysfunction of the superior esophageal sphincter muscles that then cause increased intraesophageal pressure. These can generally be be addressed by division of the esophageal sphincter uh, to prevent continued symptoms, recurrence, and post-op fistula development. Yep. So uh, treatment is, is division of the, uh, of the upper esophageal sphincter, which is what again? The cricopharyngeus. Okay. Um, so this, a lot of times will be broken down into different sizes as to how you approach these surgically. So what are your surgical options and how do you make a decision on what approach to go with? So I would think of the number three, three centimeters as a good cutoff. If you have a diverticulum that's greater than three centimeters, you'll need endoscopic division of the upper esophageal sphincter, creating a common lumen between the diverticulum and the esophagus, and that's generally effective. Uh, However, if your diverticulum is less than three centimeters, you uh, would consider an open myotomy. 
Uh, you could do this through a left neck incision with or without the diverticulectomy. Yeah. So the key, the, you know, the key step of the procedure is that division of the sphincter. Um, I think the preferred approach is the more minimally evasive approach through endoscopy, but you need to have a good, a large enough diverticulum in order for that approach to be a viable option. Um, I, I, before I saw one of these, I had a lot of t- trouble visualizing how you do an endoscopic division of the upper esophageal sphincter. So if anybody's curious out there, there's good videos on YouTube, but you, you do need to dive or take them about three centimeters in order for that to be, um, uh, in order to use that approach. I don't know what it is about Zankers. It's kind of like MEN syndrome, but they love testing this topic. Yeah, absolutely. Again, uh, just one of those commonly tested things that every general surgeon needs to know. Um, so moving down a little bit, so that's your cervical diverticula. There's also, uh, epiphrenic esophageal diverticula. Kevin, tell me a little bit about that and, and what it is and what you do about it. So maybe in your patient with, uh, nutcracker esophagus or some other motility disorder, um, it can create a diverticulum. Uh, once again, these are a, a pulsion diverticulum, um, and these are treated by diverticulectomy and, and treatment of the motility disorder. Yeah. So again, it's kind of like what we were talking about with the the perforation is when you're in there in the operating room, you got to, you got to address the underlying uh, pathology. So if this is a pulsion diverticulum from a motility disorder, you got to address that. So typically you'll do a heller myotomy at the, at the time of the uh, diverticulectomy. So, and then there's one other kind of esophageal diverticula. These are the uh, mid esophageal or the thoracic diverticula. They're a little bit different. So we'll walk us through how these are different, what causes them and what you do about them. So the big difference here is that unlike the former uh, pulsion diverticula, this is a traction diverticulum. In essence, it's a true diverticulum. You could think of all three layers of the wall being pulled, um, and, and thus this being a traction diverticulum. The pulling, it, it, you can think of that happening because it's associated with some adjacent inflammatory condition. The hallmark is TB or malignancy, um, and if symptomatic for these patients, a VATS diverticulectomy and myotomy is typically the the best course of treatment. Yes, certainly. You know, you need to, again, address what the cause is. So uh, you need to work them up for what's causing this traction diverticula in the middle of of their esophagus. That's not normal. There's either some inflammation or a malignancy there. So you address that. Um, And then, again, if you're going to treat these, you need a VATS, typically a VATS approach for that. Okay, so moving out of our diverticula, we'll move on to a different area, and that's uh, another commonly tested area, which is the Barrett's esophagus, uh, which we all know is intestinal metaplasia at the lower esophageal uh, uh, at the lower esophagus. So that's a change from your squamous to your colum- columnar type cell. Um, uh, so, what causes this this metaplasia, Kevin? So it's from prolonged exposure of the esophageal mucosa to gastric acid. And so what's a big concern with this, Wu? Like, why, why are we so worried about Barrett's esophagus? What's, what's the problem there? It markedly increases your risk of developing esophageal cancer, and it's on the order of 30 to 60 times. Yeah, 30 to 60 times. So that's, that's significant. So these patients, a lot is focused on how to treat these, what to do about these, how do we monitor them? So what's a good kind of general rule, um, safe answer for surveillance of Barrett's esophagus, Kevin? So you want to do an EGD uh, with biopsies, and so um, annu- at least annually. And then if two consecutive years are negative for dysplasia, you can space that out to every three. But you want to do a four-quadrant biopsies every one to two centimeters of involved segment. 
Yeah, I think that's a good safe. You'll see different recommendations out there, um, uh, but I think that's a good safe surveillance um, schedule for these patients. So let's say you're doing your surveilling your patient, a woo, and you see low-grade dysplasia on the biopsy. What do you do? So at this point, instead of waiting a year to do the repeat biopsy, um, I would decrease the surveillance interval so you're repeating the endoscopy in six months. Okay, so low-grade dysplasia on your surveillance biopsy, repeat endoscopy with biopsy in six months. How about high-grade dysplasia? Uh, So this you want to repeat the biopsy and confirm with an expert GI uh, pathologist, and then you would, uh, if it is confirmed, you'd proceed with an endoscopic mucosal resection. Yep. Okay. Perfect. So, uh, and I, that's the answer. What the answer used to be? The answer used to be esophagectomy, right? For high grade dysplasia. Yeah. Like Not, even, even maybe like last year I would have answered esophagectomy, but I think, uh, nowadays, I think you probably would have got it wrong last year, yeah. but maybe a couple of years ago you would have got it right. Um, but, uh, yeah, endoscopic mucosal resection for high grade dysplasia and, and why, why not? Uh, because the rate of progression uh, to invasive cancer is lower than originally thought. And these procedures are, uh, therapeutic you know you're removing the diseased tissue yep so i think i think if, i think it's official now i think if i saw this on the boards i would absolutely answer uh, endoscopic mucosal resection for high-grade dysplasia uh moving on so let's say we progress and now we're dealing with an esophageal or uh, esophagogastric junction cancer um Wu, can you tell me a little bit about uh, a little bit about these just uh, general broad strokes yeah so you can classify them histologically into two categories, the squamous cell and adeno. Uh, Both are more common in men. The squamous type is more common in Asia and Eastern Europe. Uh, Adeno, though, is most common in North America and Western Europe. Uh, Tobacco and alcohol are strong risk factors for the squamous type, uh, whereas obesity, GERD, and Barrett's are major risk factors for adeno. It makes a little sense as to why adeno would be more common in, in North America with the obesity, you know, GERD uh, being risk factors for that. And so how do you work these patients up, Kevin? Uh, so, of course, HMP labs, but uh, importantly, you're going to be doing an endoscopy with biopsy, uh, and then you're going to stage the patient with a CT chest and abdomen, a lot of times with a PET. And then you're also going to need to be able to determine the T stage of these tumors, and that is done with an endoscopic ultrasound. Um, of the esophagus, and then you can also get FNA of suspicious uh, nodes with that. Yeah, so you know, if you have your diagnosis, the question is really how do you stage these patients? And you're going to do that with the CT chest abdomen. Uh, you're going to do an endoscopic ultrasound. You're going to FNA any suspicious nodes, and and it, uh, uh, this is one of those cancers where PET CT um, is a part of the staging. So CT uh, chest or PET CT, CT chest abdomen, US FNA of suspicious lesions. Um, this is unfortunately one of those ones where staging is important. So we'll try and break it down into kind of the important distinctions along the staging, but woo, can you, what are some important pearls for staging esophageal and esophagogastric junction cancers? So let's start with the T stage. Um, so T1 through four, uh, T1A invades lamina propria or the muscularis mucosa, uh, T1B invades the submucosa. And this is an important distinction because uh, we noted before the rich submucosal lymphatic system. So once it reaches into T1B, there's a greater likelihood of lymphatic spread. Uh, moving on to T2, this invades the muscularis propria. T3 invades the adventitia. Remember, there was no serosa in the esophagus. And T4, it invades the surrounding structures. 
T4A is considered to be resectable, so meaning it invades the pleura, the pericardium, or the diaphragm, whereas T4B is considered unresectable, meaning it invades the aorta, the vertebra, or the trachea. Yeah, so it's one of those tricky ones. Like, you really got to know the difference between T1A and T1B, because that's going to, we'll see in a little bit as we go through what some of the different NCCN guidelines are, that's going to affect your treatment algorithm. Um, you have to know the difference between 4A and 4B. 4A is your resectable, all, all those invasion of those resectable structures in the chest, the pleura, the pericardium, the diaphragm. T4B is unresectable. So the things that you can't resect, like your aorta, obviously. Um, so yeah, great. Those are just some very key things that unfortunately, I hate memorizing staging as much as the next guy, but that's something you got to know. Um, okay. Uh, how about your nodes, Wu? So moving on to the end stages, uh, N1 is considered one to two nodes being involved. N2 is three to six nodes and N3 is seven or more nodes. Okay. And then metastasis is easy. Metastasis is always the easiest part of the the staging system. M0 is no metastasis. M1 is, is, is metastasis. Uh, so, but in addition, this is, uh, makes it even more difficult to the TNM staging for esophageal cancer. What else is important? A grade is also important for uh, management decisions. Uh, EMR, endoscopic mucosal resection versus esophagectomy for small superficial lesions, and then like neoadjuvant versus surgery first. Right, right. So if you have a low-grade small lesion that may be amenable to EMR, but if you have a high-grade you know, small lesion, you're going to be less likely to do that, and you're going to need an esophagectomy. So yeah, grade is also important. Um, so let's staging, Wu. How do you kind of break these up into the stage based on what we know about TNM? Yeah, so stage one and four are the easiest. So stage one is strictly limited to T1, N0, M0. And stage four is any involvement of distant metastases. Uh, to remember stage two and three. So for stage two, you can have up to T3 and N0, M0. Or if you have a single node being involved, you could have T2, N1, M0. So again, that's T3, N0, M0 or T2, N1, M0. Yeah, and for this one, this is one of the ones where I don't, I don't really record, I don't really memorize the exact stage. I mean, you know that okay, you can have positive nodes with stage two. That's important to know. Um, know that stage four is distant. Know that stage one is you know a small uh, tumor without nodes without metastasis. But as far as recognize, you know, memorizing exactly up to T three N zero M zero for I don't, I don't necessarily do that. I think what's most important with this cancer is your T staging. So knowing that that distinction between invading into the lamina propria or the muscularis mucosa or invading into the submucosa, um, submucosal invasion is a big deal. Um, I think that's more important. So knowing those, those important facts about your T staging is important for your management. But according to this, they don't differentiate between T1A and T1B is from uh, not according to your staging. Correct. That's why I think the T stage is more important than knowing stage one versus stage two. But your, your T stage is going to affect your management decisions. So that's why I think it's more important to memorize your T staging for this particular cancer than it is to memorize each stage. If I were choosing what I was going to memorize. So that being said, let's get into some management of, of esophageal cancer. So, uh, you know, there's this across the cross study, the magic trial. Um, these are all important things that have guided our management. What can you tell me about those, Kevin? Yeah. So the takeaway message, anything greater than T1 esophageal cancer, they're going to get neoadjuvant uh, chemo rads. So uh, the cross trial uh, showed that preoperative chemo rads and uh, the perioperative chemotherapy in the MAGIC trial both improve survival in patients with resectable esophageal and esophagogastric cancers. 
Uh, so also important is the location along the esophagus. So let's talk about first um, thoracic uh, esophageal cancers that are greater than five centimeters from your cricopharyngeus. Um, and so that would include uh, anything below that, abdominal esophageal cancers, uh, gastric GE junction cancers. Uh, what should be your primary modality for treatment for those patients? So the primary surgery for these patients is esophagectomy. Um, Again, it's assuming it's resectable, yes, but yes. yeah, esophagectomy. So how about above that? So less than five centimeters um, from the cricopharyngea, so your cervical and your cervical thoracic esophageal cancers. Right. What and, is the treatment for those? Right. The distinction here is that these patients, uh, esophagectomy is not ideal for, uh, so you're going to think about definitive chemoradiation. Correct. And that, again, goes for uh, – that has to do with your your morbidity associated with that resection, your reconstruction, all that. So think about your cricopharyngeus, but greater than 5 centimeters, you know, you're thinking about resection, reconstruction. Less than 5 centimeters, you're going with definitive chemo rads. Um, so let's get into some of the official NCCN recommendations for the treatment of this. So for high-grade dysplasia, um, a, you know, car- you know, our carcinoma in situ um, or, you know, select T1A tumors – Again, that's T1A, so there's no invasion of the submucosa. Um, how do you want to treat those? This is where you can do one of uh, the endoscopic mucosal resection versus ablation um, to treat and definitively treat the cancer. But again, another ins- distinction is the, the grade. So you think about, we said select T1A tumors. So, you know, ones that are well to moderately differentiated. There's no evidence of lymph node metastasis. Those may be canon. This is official NCCN guidelines, so I think this is safe to answer on the boards. Um, endoscopic uh, resection uh, with uh, plus or minus ablation. Now, we'll, how about we move into that T1B? So there's submucosal invasion, but no nodes. What do you do with those? So these patients, uh, you could do esophagectomy. Right, and the important part about that is is it's upfront esophagectomy. Whereas all the other esophagectomies we're going to do are after chemo rads. The yeah. vast majority of your esophagectomy patients, as we said, the vast majority come with distant disease. There's no serosa to contain the cancer. Yeah. Uh, so the vast majority of patients that have esophageal cancer are getting chemo rads before you do your esophagectomy. So I agree. So if I, if I were given this on a test and they had submucosal invasion T1B, uh, I would be thinking esophagectomy. Um, however, uh, NCSCN guidelines, young patients... And you got to think about grade again. So if you have a high-grade T1B, those may be uh, patients you want to think about neoadjuvant therapy. So we're using neoadjuvant therapy, neoadjuvant chemo rads more and more for esophageal cancers. So high-grade, again, T1B, high-grade, I would think neoadjuvant. Low-grade, esophagectomy first is likely what I would answer. So then T2 or greater, Kevin? So like we discussed, all these patients will get neoadjuvant chemo radiation followed by esophagectomy um, as long as it is uh, resectable. And I should uh, also say T2 or greater or any positive nodes. So T2 or greater or any positive nodes, definitely get a neoadjuvant chemo rads followed by esophagectomy if resectable. Um, how about unresectable disease? These patients will undergo definitive chemo radiation. And again, unresectable disease is that T4B, so invades those structures you can't resect, uh, your aorta, for instance, or distant metastasis. Okay. Um, now we say we throw, we're saying definitive chemo rads. What does that mean? What are we talking about for our, um, our, our chemotherapy regimens? So whether it is neoadjuvant or definitive, 
the chemotherapy regimen is both uh, based on 5-FU, uh, so fluorouracil and uh, taxane. Yeah, so the fluorouracil or taxane-based therapy for, for our, our chemotherapy. Uh, we, they talk, we hear a lot about different approaches to your esophagectomies. Um, so what are your different approaches and what are some, um, key points and pluses to minuses to the different? Yeah. So, uh, there's two primary ones, the, the trans thoracic or Ivor Lewis esophagectomy, and then the trans hiatal esophagectomy, uh, with the Ivor Lewis esophagectomy, you're going to make a laparotomy and a right thoracotomy. And a up in that, and you're going to make your anastomosis in the chest. Um, so this is good for distal tumors. So you mobilize the stomach and the abdomen. You can do it laparoscopically too. Um, and but you mobilize the stomach and and make it into your conduit, which is based on the right gastroepiploic artery. Which, like in my intern year, was a question on the test. So um, and then you mobilize it, and then you, in the chest is where you do the esophageal resection and, and bring it up and make a thoracic. Uh, anastomosis. The, the downside of a Ivor Lewis esophagectomy, or I guess a, a positive side first, is that um, some people feel you get a better lymph node harvest with uh, this procedure. A downside is is that uh, if you have a leak, it's a thoracic, and, and leaks in these surgeries are relatively common compared to other anastomoses. Uh, it can be devastating as it's in the the chest and the mediastinum. So th that is a positive and a negative of the Ivor Lewis esophagectomy. Perfect. And then, so uh, a McCown, uh, McCown esophagectomy is similar, uh, except that you're making a higher uh, anastomosis, a cervical anastomosis, and that's that's good for your more proximal lesions. Um, one of the other major uh, options for resection, woo, is the transhiatal esophagectomy. Tell me, what does that mean? So here you're avoiding the thoracotomy, uh, and you're doing a laparotomy and a left cervical incision, and the anastomosis is going to be in the neck, so a cervical anastomosis. The advantage here is that we avoid the morbidity of the thoracotomy, particularly if the leak occurs in the chest, there won't be any mediastinitis. Um, the disadvantage, though, is that uh, unlike a Ivor Lewis esophagectomy, you're not directly visualizing the chest, and so the, the lymph node harvest tends to be smaller and, uh, again, done a little bit more blindly. Um, additionally, large mid-thoracic level tumors could be very difficult to mobilize through this method. Uh, that said, the long-term survival is equal to the transthoracic approach. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think a lot of this is dependent on, you know, surgeon experience and surgeon preference and the location of the tumor and the size of the tumor and what's involved. So I don't, I don't really see them getting into the weeds and asking you specifically what approach you're going to use for your esophagectomy. I think if I had to choose all things being equal, I would, as, I would answer a transhiatal esophagectomy. But uh, again, I don't really see them getting too much into that on the boards. Um, it's also important to note there's, there's, you know, these, there's minimally invasive techniques, um, you know, robotic, um, laparoscopic. Um, but again, that's going to vary depending on the institution and the surgeon experience. Um, but let's say we had a pre a patient who had had a previous gastric resection for whatever reason. And, uh, and, and now they got a distal esophageal tumor, esophageal cancer, and you need to do an esophagectomy. How are you going to, what's another option for your reconstruction? So here the conduit of choice would be the colon. So it'd be colon interposition. Right. So yep, the colon interposition graft um, would be the answer for that one. Um, so we've let's say let's talk about adjuvant therapy. Um, just in general, broad strokes for adjuvant therapy for esophageal cancer. Um, what do we need to know, Kevin? For squamous cell cancer, 
if you have an R0 resection, which means negative microscopic margins, uh, you do not need uh, adjuvant therapy. If, but for ad, adenocarcinoma, they generally get adjuvant chemo, except when uh, T1 and 0 and R0 resection, and that did not receive neoadjuvant therapy. But remember, the majority of these patients are going to get neoadjuvant chemo rads, so they would not get adjuvant therapy if they had neoadjuvant. Right. So, the, the, you know, the, the, so squamous cell cancer, if you have an R0 resection, you're done. Okay. They don't need adjuvant therapy. For adenocarcinoma, generally most people will get it. But if you have a very small, low-grade tumor that didn't get neoadjuvant therapy, um, and you do your resection, and they didn't get upstaged, so they're still a low-grade T1, N0, and you have an R0 resection, those patients don't need adjuvant. Now, you know, uh, the reason for that is if they'd got neoadjuvant, you don't know if you downstage this tumor, so you have to continue to treat them as if they're a higher stage and they get adjuvant therapy. Okay, that was a lot. Esophageal cancer, um, esophagus is a complex topic, very important, very highly tested, um, but, uh, but that was a good review, I think. So let's do our... Close out with our quick hits. Um, woo. So what is the are the different anatomic areas of esophageal narrowing? Uh, so there are four to think of. The cricopharyngeus muscle, the aortic arch, the left mainstem bronchus, and the LES. And why are those locations important? So clinically, they're relevant because they're the most vulnerable sites to injury. Okay. Common question, Kevin. You, you said you got it yourself uh, several years ago. The primary blood supply to the gastric conduit after an esophagectomy is the right gastroepiploic artery. So you have to be very careful when making that gastric conduit to not bag the gastroepiploic. Okay. This one is a, a zebra for sure, but it shows up in the review, the review books, review questions. Uh, so a patient has uh, dysphagia and you note skin thickening on the palms and soles of their hands and feet. What's the diagnosis? So you want to think tylosis. It's an autosomal dominant condition linked to chromosome 17Q25. It's associated with palmoplantar plantar keratoma. Uh, there's a 40 to 90% risk of squamous cell cancer of the esophagus by age 70. So these patients uh, require annual upper GI screening starting at age 20. Yeah, so I don't know what, how they may show you a, a picture. I've seen pictures of this, of, the, of these uh, palmoplantar plantar keratomas, and they may ask you what, what they need, and the answer would be an upper endoscopy. Um, okay, so squamous cell cancer of the head and neck, uh, esophagus, and uh, pancytopenia. What's the syndrome? So this is uh, Fanconi's anemia, which is different than Fanconi's syndrome. But uh, oh yeah, I'm sorry, not a syndrome. Which uh, so what what is this? Fanconi anemia. Fanconi anemia. Uh, okay, so woo uh, patient with a locally advanced esophageal cancer is undergoing neoadjuvant chemo radiation. Um, has severe mal uh, severe dysphagia and is malnourished. What type of feeding tube are you going to place? So here you would choose a jejunal feeding tube, so J tube. Uh, the reason you would avoid a G-tube or a PEG-tube is because you want to preserve the gastric conduit. Right. So no G-tubes, no PEGs in people with uh, esophageal cancer. You need that gastric conduit. So jejunal fetal tube. Uh, so you have dysphagia with a well-circumscribed uh, six-centimeter mass on barium swallow in the wall of the mid-esophagus. What are you thinking, Kevin? Also seeing this on the test. This is a esophageal lyomyoma. Yep. And you want to be careful to not biopsy these. These are very characteristic on their uh, the swallow studies and CT scans um, that you do not need uh, biopsy because if you biopsy it, it complicates the excision of it. And and the way you do this is uh, 
by a, a vats or a thoracotomy uh, on the right side for mid-esophageal lesions and you enucleate it. Yep. So, uh, so for symptomatic tumors or tumors, so they're, like I say, they're very characteristic. So symptomatic tumors or tumors greater than five centimeters, the, the treatment is enucleation. And so since the treatment's enucleation, uh, if you do perform an FNA, it's going to scar it to the mucosa and it's going to make your enucleation even more difficult. Um, your approach is going to depend on the location. So for mid esophagus, you're going to go with a right-sided approach for your distal esophagus. What side are you going to go into? Left-sided. Left-sided. Perfect. Um, okay. So last one. So a patient with longstanding, uh, esophageal reflux, GERD, uh, now has dysphagia. EGD demonstrates a narrowed ring of mucosal just above the GE junction. What's the diagnosis? So this is a Schottsky's ring. And the key here is that you dilate and, and treat with PPIs, but you do not resect these. Do not resect Schottsky's rings. Benign, uh, treatment is PPI and dilation. And I think uh, one thing that we've kind of covered throughout, but we did not directly mention, is the approaches to the esophagus at each level. So if they have a perforation at each level, you're going to go the left neck for a cervical perforation, the right chest for a mid-thoracic perforation because the heart's not in the way, and then a distal perforation, you're going to go through the left chest. Perfect. And we'll end it there. So that is your esophageal review for Abside and the Boars from Behind the Knife. We'll see you next time. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.